Well, good morning, Reliance Church. How are you guys? Awesome. I, would, I was thinking as I was sitting there in the worship, and this was a church I would definitely come to if I lived in the area. So just so you know, you guys are blessed. You have a great staff of people working here. You have a wonderful pastor. I've known him for a number of years now. And just as Cody mentioned, he serves on our board of our church. And then, uh, excuse me, I serve on your board, and he serves on our board. So we actually swap pulpits today, and he's up in Grand Terrace uh, giving the message there. So they're blessed to have him. Hopefully you guys will be blessed to have me. And I'm excited to be here. Always love to share God's word with you guys. Um, you know, Ted and I texted each other this week. Something you do when you're a pastor and you're going to speak at another guy's church is you ask the question, what are you speaking on right now? What have you been, what have you been teaching through? And so I happen to be teaching through Ephesians and he happens to be teaching through Colossians. I think you guys finished Colossians last week. And uh, so I, sell, I tell Ted that's interesting because those are very similar books, very very much alike. And, uh, and by the way, Ted, I said, I'd like to teach a message out of Ephesians chapter 5 on the topic of walking in wisdom. And, uh, and Ted says, well, wait a minute. You know, that's the exact message I gave last Sunday morning. You know, and he's like, out of the 1,100 plus chapters in the Bible and 31,000 verses, Pastor, could you not find something else to speak on? He didn't say that, but I know he was thinking it, knowing Ted. So, so I went and searched the scriptures and he said, I'll tell you what you can do, Rick. Listen to my message. Tell me if you think it's any different and then you can do whatever you think that you need to do and all that. So I listened to the message and man, he did a really good job. I thought, I wish I could just get up and preach his message again because it was so good. And, uh, but I listened to it, you know, and I've been praying and I really just kept coming back to this same subject. And then I remembered a story that I had read a while back about a preacher that preached to Henry VIII. This was back, of course, many, many centuries ago. And uh, he was asked to preach, and so he preached, and he gave a message, and it really offended the king. And all the king's men said, hey, listen, you need to come back next week and make it right and tell them you're sorry for everything you said. And so the preacher came back the next week, and he preached the exact same message again. And uh, they were really upset now, and they said, listen, we're going to give you one more chance. You better come back, and you better apologize to the king. And so he came back again the third time, and guess what? He preached the exact same message again. And when he was walking away, he told them something about if the king repents and puts into practice what I've already preached, then I'll preach something different next time. And so I'm here today without apology. I'm going to speak on walking in wisdom, even though Ted talked about it last week. So Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And it's different enough where you guys will hopefully enjoy it. Now, Ephesians is a lot like Colossians. It's broken up into two halves. The first three chapters deal with doctrine, and the last three chapters deal with duty. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says that we should have a walk that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And in the first three chapters, he tells us what that calling is. He basically says it's all that God has done for us. It's all the riches we have in Christ, that we have been redeemed, we've been adopted, we've been saved, and that God has went to great lengths to do that for us. So in light of that, have a walk that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then in chapter 4 through 6, he tells us what that walk looks like. And he basically says it's a walk of unity, that we would all strive to get along with one another in the church. I don't know about you, but it's not always easy to get along. We're to strive to do that. That it's also a walk of purity, that we shouldn't live after sensuality and greed any longer. And then he went on to say it's also a walk of charity or love, that we should love one another with the same love that God has loved us and that we should be imitators of God. That's a high standard. And then he went on to say, not only that, but you should no longer walk in lust. In other words, no longer walking in the darkness of sexual immorality, but rather because we are in the light, we should walk in the light as children of the light. 
And then he went on to go in chapter 5 and 6, and he basically says, you know, not only is that a worthy walk, but we should have a worthy walk in our homes. And he gets into marriage and parenting and children, all that kind of stuff. But what I want to key in on is verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. Look at it. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. I want to talk to you about walking wise, walking in wisdom, instead of walking in foolishness. And that's what Paul deals with here. So the title of my message this morning is Walking in Wisdom. Let's read it again, verse 15 through 20. Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word is true. And Lord, we're here today because, Lord, we believe that you not only are real and true, but, Lord, you've given us your word that we might know you and that we might live lives that are in accordance to who you are. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us by your spirit the things that you have revealed to us in your word. Show us, Lord, how to be people who walk in wisdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and all the church said, Amen. Well, last month we celebrated what has been called by some the Atheist's Annual Holiday. It's April 1st, or April Fool's Day, right? Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And of course, this is a day that we often will use to pull pranks on people and then kind of cover it all with the overarching April Fool's Day, like somehow that excuses it all. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you might have went to work that day and one of your coworkers taped your drawer shut, you know, of, the, of your desk. And you're like, what's going on here? Maybe they put a whoopee cushion, you know, under your chair. I don't know. Uh, maybe they punched a bunch of holes in a water bottle and put it in the fridge. And then you went and it wouldn't leak until you opened the lid and it all starts leaking all over you. Or maybe you went out to lunch and they decided to loosen the salt shaker, you know. So when you went and salted your salad, you got salt everywhere, which, by the way, you shouldn't be using salt anyway. So it serves you right. But here's the point. April Fool's, it kind of covers it all, right? And what's interesting is even corporations got into the spirit this last year. 2013, Google announced they're going to roll out a new product called Google Nose. It's the new sensation in search where you can actually search for smells and then smell them on your cell phone. And uh, people were calling up, when are you going to release this program? I can't wait to try it. Well, it, unfortunately, it just really can't work, right? It's an April Fool's joke and they set it out that way. Or, or Virgin Airlines actually announced they're going to be releasing their new glass-bottom airplane. And uh, people were calling up, really, I want to fly on that, you know. In fact, uh, the greatest April Fool's prank happened back in 1998 when Burger King actually published a full-page advertisement announcing their introduction of their new left-handed Whopper, uh, especially designed for the 32 million left-handed people. How many of you are left-handed in here? Okay, so you guys, it was made for you. The advertisement went on to say that the new Whopper included all the same ingredients as the original Whopper, lettuce, tomato, cheese, hamburger, and so on, but the items were rotated 180 degrees for the benefit of their left-handed customers. The next day, Burger King had to issue a second press release stating that although the left-handed Whopper was an April Fool's hoax, thousands of customers showed up at their restaurants requesting the new sandwich. And not only that, they said simultaneously a bunch of people came in requesting their own right-handed version of the sandwich. 
I mean, April Fool's jokes. Now, isn't it amazing, and I'm sure you agree with me when, we, when I say that, people do some pretty crazy stuff, pretty foolish things. You know, we watch America's Dumbest Criminals. We watch, you know, A Thousand Ways to Die or all these different shows. We're in vivid color right before us, these foolish, mindless, crazy, stupid things that people do. We wonder, you know, is this even human to do the things they've done? I had a friend this week that told me, you know, I, I just have a real low tolerance for stupid lately. And I thought, you know, we all relate to that. You know, we know what it's like to deal with people and to realize the foolish, stupid things that they do. Well, listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are called to walk in wisdom. We're not to be marked by foolishness or ridiculousness or stupidity. We are to be marked by wisdom, and we should be the wisest people in the entire earth. In fact, Paul says here again in verse 15, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You see, one thing that should set us apart as believers in addition to love and unity and joy is wisdom. People should be able to look at our lives as Christians and know there's something different. They actually are wise. they got a head on their shoulders. And they are not walking in foolishness. Now, Paul uses the term here, fools, which simply means the opposite of wise or unwise. You could say, you know, do not be unwise, but rather be wise or be wise guys. But you might say, but what is a fool? And a lot of times we consider a fool as somebody that's ignorant or doesn't have a lot of knowledge. But actually, the Bible describes a fool as somebody that is immoral. In fact, it doesn't talk about being ignorant. It talks about being immoral. In fact, there's a number of verses that deal with foolishness and being a fool. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 14, excuse me, Psalms chapter 14, verse 1, again, it says a fool is someone that doesn't believe in God, right? In Proverbs chapter 7, verse 22, a fool is somebody that goes after a harlot or a prostitute. That person is a fool. Somebody, a fool is somebody that ignores God's commandments. Proverbs 10, 8, a fool is somebody that is deceptive and lies. Proverbs 10, 10, a fool is somebody that slanders other people. Proverbs 10, 18, a fool is somebody that's right in his own eyes and doesn't listen to the advice of other people. Proverbs 12, 15, a fool is somebody that gets angry quickly. A fool is somebody that is self-confident in the midst of temptation. In other words, I can handle it. That's a fool. A fool is somebody that ignores warnings, corrections, and instruction. A fool is somebody that cares only about expressing their own ideas and thoughts. And a fool is somebody that likes to start quarrels with other people. A fool is somebody that's unreliable. And a fool is somebody that hires somebody that's a fool and unreliable. A fool is somebody that vents all their feelings. They're also somebody that is lazy, somebody that trusts in their own heart. They're also somebody whose words are hasty, perverse, slanderous, scoffing, boastful, and somebody that has a lot of words. In other words, they say a lot. And then, of course, according to Matthew 5, 22, a fool is somebody that doesn't believe in hell, and a fool is somebody that keeps building and storing of treasures in this life with no thought for the life to come. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. There's a lot about being a fool, isn't there? In fact, one famous preacher by the name of Joseph Parker one Sunday morning was walking out into his pulpit when somebody in the balcony dropped down a little note and it landed right in front of the pulpit. So he picked it up and all it had written on the piece of paper was fool. And Mr. Parker walked up to the pulpit and he said, you know, in all these years I've been in ministry, I've gotten many letters where people gave a note, but they didn't sign their name. This is the first time I got where somebody signed a name and didn't give the note to go along with it foolishness. See, instead of being unwise or foolish, wisdom, again, should be the mark of every believer. We should be set apart from the world by our wisdom. In fact, as believers in Christ who have been born again, the Bible says that we have been born again to wisdom. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul the Apostle says to Timothy that wisdom is something that comes with salvation. He says, from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the most wise people in all the world are saved people. And then Paul the Apostle added in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we are in Christ. That's what it means to be a believer. And that he has become for us the wisdom of God. So listen, if you're saved and you have the word of God and you know the word of God and you're in Christ, you are wise and you have all kinds of wisdom at your disposal. And not only that, James adds and said, listen, if you lack wisdom, you can simply ask God and he will give it to you liberally. So wisdom is certainly the mark of every believer. Now you might say, well, what is wisdom? Now Ted did a good job last week defining it. It's really the application of knowledge. You may be very knowledgeable but not have any wisdom and you may be a buffoon, but the truth is, if you are wise, you know how to apply that knowledge. Webster's Dictionary defines it as the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. But I like the Greek word that Paul uses here in Ephesians. When he says the word wise, it's the Greek word sophos. And what it means is a watchman that is standing on an elevated place and is able to look around him and get a very good panoramic view of everything going on. So somebody that is wise is somebody that doesn't just frivolously make decisions, but rather they give good judgment of everything going on around them, even from an elevated place, if you will, to be able to make an assessment and then to be able to make a wise choice or decision based on what they have seen. And of course, according to the Bible, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the more we know God, the more we understand God, the more we fear God and reverence him and don't want to displease him, automatically the wiser we will become. You might say, well, this is all great, Pastor, wisdom and all that, but, but how do we walk in wisdom? I mean, how do you put that into practice in a practical way? Well, listen, that's what Paul deals with here in the rest of the verses that we'll look at. In fact, he gives us four very practical ways in which you and I can walk in wisdom. And I want to give them to you. The first one is this. Number one, he says to walk in wisdom is to walk, listen, anticipating your next step. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. That word for circumspectly means precisely or carefully or accurately. In other words, that you're not living in such a way where you're not paying attention to the next step or where you're going. Instead, because you're wise, you are anticipating what that next step is going to be and where it's going to bring you. So you're carefully taking that step. You're making sure it's a good step. It's a secure step. It's a safe step. That it's a wise step. That you're looking ahead before you make it, and then you're making it. Another way to describe it would be to look carefully where you walk. And it's actually an accounting term for you know, precision or preciseness or accuracy. You know, If you're balancing your checkbook and you come across an entry and you're like, huh, I'm not really sure, is that $10 or $1,000? Well, let's just make it $100. You know, and you make that, I mean, that's not going to be accurate, right? It might come up wrong in the end. And it's the same thing with walking circumspectly. You're walking in such a way that there's precision in your walk. And what Paul is saying is just like a soldier that's in a minefield. You have to walk being careful that you don't step on a mine. Well, we as believers have been strewn about with all kinds of obstacles and temptations and really minds that the enemy has strewn in our path and obstacles that we need to be careful how we're living because the days are evil. We need to make sure we're walking circumspectly. And of course, unfortunately, many Christians just... Meander through life without any real direction and any real 
circumspectness to their walks at all. It's just kind of, I'll do this, I'll do that, and without any real thought. And yet what he's saying here is if you aren't careful, you're going to find yourself in a dangerous place. Now, listen, we all walk circumspectly in different aspects of our life. You know, if you happen to be barefoot, maybe sitting around your house on a lazy Saturday and you decide, you know, I'd like to get a nice cold drink of water. And so you go to your cabinet and you reach in and you grab a glass. But as you're bringing it out of your cabinet, it hits the side, falls out of your hand, lands on the ground, shatters into a thousand pieces. You know, you don't just go, oh, wait, I better get a broom and run over real quick and get a broom. You know, you, you do what? You walk circumspectly, right? I'll make sure there's no glass. Let me move over there. And you get, you know, to your destination without slicing your feet up. You know, maybe it's a hot summer's day and you're in your bare feet and all of a sudden you realize I need to get something out of my car. And so you rush out into the asphalt of the street and there you realize it's 100 degrees on the, in the air and it's 130 on that asphalt. And your feet are burning and you're doing what? You're looking for any little spot of shade you can find, right? And that's what it means to walk circumspectly. Or maybe you have a large dog and you decide to take a walk out in your backyard. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've got to walk circumspectly. You might get a little something between the toes. I remember a number of years ago, I built a fort. This was when I was a kid, by the way. It wasn't a number of years ago. It was a long time ago. In my backyard, I used to take all the scrap wood you know, and build a fort. And it was pretty hideous. And my dad came home and he goes, that thing is hideous. It's an embarrassment. You know, take that thing down. And so, you know, it took him about a week to convince me. And I finally started taking it down. I'm ripping off all the wood I'd nailed up and stuff. And I remember, you know, being a kid, you're like, all right, I put 10 minutes and I'll do the rest tomorrow. And I tore, tore it apart and I went back in the house. Well, a little while later, I realized, oh, I need something I'd left in the fort. I'm in my bare feet. And so I walked out into the grass and I took my first step and put my foot right on top of a board with two 16-penny nails sticking up out of it. And as I went down and realized my foot is now impaired on this piece of wood, I jumped up in the air and landed on another board with the other two feet. And so needless to say, I had a trail of blood going into the house. See, I wasn't walking circumspectly. I wasn't careful in how I walked. You see, this is what Paul is saying is we are to walk in such a way because there's a lot of situations in life where you can't just rush forward. You can't just proceed on. You've got to take your time and make a wise step because the same is true in our lifestyles and our conduct. We can't make decisions hastily. We can't make decisions based on our emotions, our consequences, our circumstances. We need to walk circumspectly. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. And you know, this is really the one main thing in my own life that has helped me to avoid sinful practices and making wrong choices. And I'm sure I've made plenty and I've done my share. But the truth of the matter is, is when you walk circumspectly, again, you're looking ahead to where that step leads and you're going to decide whether or not I'm going to make that step. And when it comes to sin, a lot of times you can be tempted to sin. And what a lot of people do is they don't look ahead to where that leads. And the next thing you know, they've given in and now they're reaping the consequences. If you just take a moment and go, where does that step lead? Where does that little adulterous fling lead? Where does that stealing lead? And if you're honest, in most cases, it leads to bad circumstances in the end. Well, how do you know that's for certain, Pastor? Well, maybe it isn't, but can you live with the consequences if it is? You see, that's the question you need to ask yourself. So you're about ready to take a step. You're about ready to give in temptation and then realize, well, if I take that, where does it lead? And this is what's helped me to kind of, at least for the most part, walk a pretty narrow life. And that is because I've circumspectly anticipated where that step's going to go. And I don't want to pay the consequences of it. And so I don't make that step. Because listen, here's the truth. It usually does go bad. You know, anyone committing adultery eventually gets caught, out, caught up uh, uh, with them. Anyone who's stealing usually gets busted at some point or another. Any sin you do, the Bible says your sin will find you out. 
that you will reap what you sow. There'll come a day where you'll have to give an account for what you've done. And you may think, well, I can get away from it right now. But where does that ultimately lead? And if you simply ask yourself that question, you could avoid yourself a lot of trouble. And that's what Paul is saying. You want to walk in wisdom, then walk circumspectly. But he doesn't end there. He gives us a second thing in the next verse, verse 16. To walk in wisdom, number two, is we are to walk by redeeming the time. Verse 16, redeem the time for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what God's will is. And literally, this means to buy it up. When you talk about redeeming, it talks about purchasing it up, buying it up, collecting it back up. In fact, each one of us, according to uh, you know, the, the reality, is that we all have been given 86,400 seconds in one day. We've all been given the same amount of time. It's like 31,536,000 seconds seconds in a year, 31,536,000 seconds. Every single second is ticking away. In fact, right now we had one, now we have another, and another. They're all ticking away, right? One after another. What do you do with all those seconds, those 86,400 seconds in a day? What do you do with them? How are you spending them? Imagine them being dollar bills, and every day you get up in the morning and you got $86,400 in your bank account. And yet the only thing is if you go to the end of the day and you don't use them all, they all get taken back. What would you do if that was the case? You'd go every morning and you'd withdraw all $86,400. And you'd go out and have a great day because the next day you're going to get another $86,400 and you don't want to waste any of it. Well, we've been given time and time is way more valuable than, than, uh, than our money. I mean, you know, you can't roll them over. This isn't the Verizon rollover plan. You know, once they're gone, they're gone. And so we need to use them wisely. Well, how valuable is time? Well, how valuable is a year? Ask a student who's failed a grade and has to repeat it. How valuable is a month? Ask a mother whose baby arrived early. How valuable is a week? Ask an editor of a weekly newspaper. How valuable is an hour? Ask somebody who's about to die and they're waiting for a loved one to show up. How valuable is a minute? Ask somebody who missed a plane or missed a a train or some other form of transportation. How valuable is one second? Ask an Olympic medalist or someone having missed a near-miss accident. It was three-tenths of a second that separated the first-place downhill skier from the second place and was the difference between $3 million uh, award and a $10,000 award. Three-tenths of a second. That just that much can make the difference between life and eternity. The famed business guru Peter Druckard once said that time is the scarcest resource and unless it's managed, nothing else can be. There's no substitutes for time. Everything requires time. It's the only truly universal condition. In other words, we all have been given exactly the same amount, whether you're rich or poor, no matter who you are, we've all been given 86,400 seconds, and we need to be stewards over what God has given us, and if we don't protect it, they'll be lost, and the next thing you know, they'll be over, and they'll be done, and you can't get them back. Every second ticking away, one at a time. In fact, one pastor said he loves clocks and watches that have a second hand that actually ticks because he likes to hear that every second is passing and he wants to make sure he's using it wisely for the glory of God. And not only that, our time is also short, right? The Bible says in James, our life is but a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow, it just dissipates so quickly. And, and tomorrow is promised to nobody. And yet we waste today not realizing that tomorrow might not be here for us. I, I had a guy in our church this week who has an extended family member who, whose son just ate dinner with his family, went upstairs with a peach in his hand to do his homework, and 20 minutes later they went up to his room, and there he was lying on the ground unconscious with a peach seed stuck in his windpipe, and he died. 
20 minutes ago, he's eating dinner with his family. 20 minutes later, he's gone. That's the brevity of life. It goes by so quickly. I mean, I remember when I was 19, looking at the year 2000 in the future. You guys remember this? I'm like, man, 2000, I'm going to be 35 years old in 2000. That's amazing. I can't imagine what my life's going to be like. And then in 2010, I'll be 45. In 2020, I'll be 55. I'm like, man, that's going to be crazy. Guess what, folks? I'm there. I'm living it right now. I'm I'm in those days. I'm thinking to myself, what happened to my 20s? I can't even remember them. What happened to my 30s? I got a couple of years to go, and I'm going to be in my 50s. What's going to happen? I'm going to look back and go, where did my 40s go? I can't even remember. And my kids are adults. I got a 23-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter, and they're moving on. My son lives in Hawaii. My daughter's going to the Bible college. It's like they're grown up. What happened? I just remember, you know, when they were little and doing things, and now they're grown up. And listen, you got little kids. It's just a matter of time. They're going to be 18, 25. They're going to be grown up. You're going to go, what happened to my 20s and 30s? Life is so quick. It was Billy Graham that was asked the question, what one thing about life is the biggest surprise to you? And he said, it's brevity. It's so short, it goes by so quickly. And that's why Paul says here, redeem the time. Grab it up, buy it up, make the most of every opportunity. It's like if something went on sale, you know, to buy it up means you would buy it all. Like, you know, maybe you went to Rite Aid and they got your favorite hairspray on sale. It's the only place they sell it. And then you find out not only is it on sale, they're discontinuing it. You know, you ladies would buy it all up. I know some of you bought up a bunch of Twinkies thinking somehow that was going to last, but that didn't happen. Make every second count. And that's why, again, redeem the time for the days are evil. In fact, you might say, well, how do I use my time wisely? Well, Paul tells us in verse 17, look what he says. says, therefore, don't be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. He's saying, here's how you use your time wisely. Do the will of God. Whenever you do the will of God, you're never wasting your time. It's always good use of your time. Well, that's great, Pastor. If I just knew what the will of God was, I would be doing it all the time. Well, he tells us what it is. There's a few things in the Bible that are directly told that they're God's will. For instance, not being conformed to this world, the Bible says, is God's will, right? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So how do I do the will of God? Don't be conformed to the world. That's one thing. Don't be wasting your time pursuing worldly things. Not only that, Thessalonians tells us, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So give thanks, rejoice, be joyful, and everything give thanks. Pray. I'm never wasting time to pray. Never wasting time to rejoice. It says that it's God's will that we become more like Jesus every day. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That means being set apart for God a little bit more every day. And of course, a number of other things, serving him, obeying the laws uh, he gives us, abstaining from the lust of the flesh, and so on. These are all things that would be using our time wisely according to God's word. Now listen, because he says here, walk circumspectly in wisdom, and he says to make the best use of our time, It's interesting what Paul says next in verse 18. Look what he says. He says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Kind of interesting. In the context of wisdom, he talks about drunkenness and alcoholism. It's interesting because a lot of people like to take this verse out of the context when the context is that it's speaking about wisdom. And Paul adds there, rather than being filled with spirits, Be wise and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this leads me to the third thing 
about walking in wisdom. To walk in wisdom, we are to walk by not partying. Okay, I know it doesn't say not partying there. It doesn't say that. It says drunkenness. It doesn't even say not drinking. It says drunkenness. But listen, where does drunkenness usually and drinking usually happen? At a party, right? He mentions not getting drunk. And of course, mentioning that brings up the whole topic of drinking and all that. We could talk about that in a message all by itself. And, you know, what is drinking? What is alcohol? What's the alcohol content? You know, is wine today the same as the wine back then? Is it diluted? What's the difference between wine, intoxicating drink, strong drink? I mean, there's certainly some differences. But let me just kind of get to the chase with you guys. The Bible's clear. It is not a sin to drink alcohol. It's never called a sin. However, drunkenness is a sin, and the Bible clearly mentions it. In fact, it even says a drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're a drunkard, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is encouraging in some ways because that means that if you won't inherit the kingdom of God and you're a drunkard, that you can no longer be a drunkard, that God can change your life, radically transform you by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, and you can no longer be a drunkard. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said that such were some of you. This was the way you used to be, drunkards and idolaters, but that's the way you used to be. Now that you're in Christ, you're a whole new creation. So drunkenness can be repented of and changed, but drunkenness is a sin and drunkenness will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. And the question with it and the problem with it, however, and if anyone here can answer it, you can tell me after the service, what is drunkenness? Is it 1.0 alcohol level? Is it 0.08 alcohol level? Is it when you're a little tipsy? Is it when you're praying to the porcelain God? I mean, what's drunk? Where do you draw the line? I don't know. I don't know that anyone really knows. I mean, where do we draw the line of it? And see, now the problem I have with drinking at all, in my opinion, is it could be for one person, one glass could be another person, a few glasses. But if I'm seeking to live in wisdom and live for the glory of God, why would I ever want to possibly push something to an unknown limit and then hope I'm not crossing the line. I'd rather just stay away from the line altogether, right? And of course, the main argument most people give today for drinking was, well, Jesus drank alcohol, didn't he? And actually, I, I searched the scriptures on this because I hear that all the time, and it never actually describes him doing it. For instance, in the wedding feast at Cana, John chapter 3, Jesus changed water to wine. Okay, yeah, Jesus likes wine. He changed water to wine. But it never says he drank it. In the communion, Jesus took the cup and handed it to the disciples. And we know that those cups in the communion, the Last Supper, were wine. We don't know whether it was diluted wine or whatever. But it never says Jesus drank it. It just says at the end of that verse, and so they all drank. Does that mean Jesus and them or just the disciples because he handed the disciples? And in fact, he even said, this is my blood that was shed for you. So was it wine or was it blood? Did Jesus change it into blood? Probably not. It was probably wine. But nonetheless, it never says he actually drank it. And then you can go to the cross, and when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they offered him sour wine, and he first rejected it, but then another gospel says it sounds like he took it, but certainly he wasn't guzzling sour wine. He was just wetting his lips, so therefore Jesus drank. Actually, there is one verse, Luke seven thirty three, where Jesus himself says this. Listen, he says, John the Baptist came eating and drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, or me, I came eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors. So Jesus admits to it. Now, the Pharisees exaggerated and called him a drunkard and a wine-bibber, but Jesus obviously is stating here that he did drink wine. Just never describes him actually doing it, but he did drink wine. But what was it? Was it wine? Was it wine like we know today? Was it grape juice? Was it one-third watered down? Was it one-twentieth watered down? We have all these different scenarios. The bottom line is, I don't know. 
And you don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. But the one condition people used was Jesus drank alcohol so I can drink alcohol. And let me say something. You certainly can. You have that liberty. You have that freedom. The Bible says all things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Paul wrote those words. In other words, you can do it, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wise to do it. And in fact, people will often say, well, I can have one drink and I'm okay. I'm a social drinker. As somebody once put it, though, a Chinese proverb said at best, man, first the man takes a drink and then the drink takes a drink and then the drink takes the man. And unfortunately, that's often how it happens, right? One out of every 10 social drinkers becomes an alcoholic. I had a friend of mine that actually is the one that led me to Christ, took me to a Christian camp, calls me up a couple of years ago and says, I want you to know something. I'm in a rehab center. I've been an alcoholic for 20 years. Started out with just casual social drinking. And now my life is upside down because of alcoholism. Let me just give you a couple thoughts. I'm not here to change anyone's view because the Bible does say that you are free to drink, but I'll just give you a couple things to think about based on the Bible. And this is what the Bible says, that drinking alcohol at all, number one, is something that if you aspire to be a spiritual leader or listen, if you desire God to use your life mightily, is something that you will set aside, something that you'll put aside. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 31 says, no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Now that's the Old Testament, but it's reiterated in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul the Apostle says that a elder must not be given to wine and a deacon must not be given to much wine. In other words, most commentators agree, it really simply means the same thing. A leader, somebody in a spiritual leadership role should not really be drinking alcohol at all. Isaiah 28, verse 7, but they have erred through wine, through intoxicating drink, are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They've swallowed up wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Proverbs 31, verses 4, and for those kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. A leader, somebody that God wants to use in the church, the best thing they can do is abstain from any alcohol. In fact, we have a policy in our church, and I believe you guys do here as well, that I've asked all my leaders, anyone in a leadership position, to set aside that liberty of drinking alcohol at all. I'm even talking about when you go to a restaurant with your wife and it's your anniversary and you want a glass of wine, I ask them to set it aside if you want to serve in leadership in the church because we don't want to stumble anybody and it's just not wise for a leader to do. And if they're unwilling, then just step out of leadership. That's fine, you have the liberty. But certainly those who are in leadership, those who want to set their life apart for God, should set aside alcohol. In fact, I haven't drank alcohol, I don't say this boastfully, for 27 plus years, to my knowledge. Now, the reason I say to my knowledge is because there was an incident a few months ago where uh, I served communion. I was actually having a small meeting, and I said, I'm going to serve everyone communion at this meeting. And so I got out the cup and the juice and all that stuff, and I'm filling it up. And I realized that the juice had been left in the closet, and it wasn't refrigerated, and it kind of swelled up the bottle a little bit. It was kind of, you know, puffed out. And I thought, you know, I released the lid and the little you know, air came out. And I thought, well, it smells all right. So I didn't test it. I just poured it in all the cups. And uh, so we're having communion later on. And we're all praying. And then we take the cup. And everybody had this look on their face because it had fermented in the cup. And so here's the pastor leading everyone in drinking alcohol. I mean, you can just thank me for that. But, you know, that may have been the only time I did it. But here's the truth. You know, many great men in the Bible and great women in the Bible were people that set apart alcohol. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the wine which the king drank. 
John the Baptist, Luke 1.15 says, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord and he shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. He set it apart. In, in Numbers chapter 6, it lays out the requirements for a Nazarite vow and it's a vow of consecrating yourself to God and it says that they shall separate themselves to the Lord and shall neither drink wine or similar drink. In other words, anybody that wants to be used by God and separate their life apart and set them apart, it's a good thing to put aside this liberty in a way in which you can set yourself apart to be used of God. That's just practical stuff. But not only that, the Bible also calls drinking unwise. If you look throughout the Bible, I mean, the most critical thing it basically says is it's just not wise to do. Never in all the Bible is there a verse given that shows it in a positive light. And again, Ephesians chapter 5 is all about wisdom. And here in the middle of, right in the middle of wisdom, he talks about not being drunk with spirits, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so certainly it's wise to remain abstinent from it. Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Whoever's led astray is not wise. Hosea 4.11, harlotry and wine and new wine enslave the heart. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine, when men valiant at mixing intoxicating drink. Proverbs 21, 17, he who loves pleasure will be poor, and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed drink or wine. Proverbs 23, 29. I mean, if you think about it, God calls it unwise. You look at the statistics of what it does in families and marriages and relationships, And we think about all the health problems and heartache. You wonder, why would I want to be engaged in it at all? People go, wait a minute, Pastor, you missed one verse. It says to go and to drink for stomach's sake, right? Go and have some wine, Timothy, for your stomach's sake. So medicinally, you can drink alcohol. Well, that's where NyQuil comes in, right? And we got NyQuil, right? You can drink that. It's okay. I mean, they used to say marijuana was for medicinal purposes, too. I don't know. It seems like a lot of people are needing it all of a sudden, you know? Listen to what a member of Alcoholics Anonymous said when she sent a column to Ann Landers. She said this, quote, We drank for happiness and we became unhappy. We drank for joy and we became miserable. We drank for sociability and we became argumentative. We drank for sophistication and we became obnoxious. We drank for friendship and we turned to enemies. We drank for sleep and we awakened without rest. We drank for strength and we felt weak. We drank medicinally and we acquired health problems. We drank to relax, but we got the shakes. We drank for bravery, and we became afraid. We drank for confidence, and we became doubtful. We drank so that we can make conversation easier, and we slurred our speech. We drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. We drank to forget, and we were forever haunted. We drank for freedom, and we became slaves. We drank to erase our problems and saw them multiply. We drank to cope with life, and we invited death. I mean, sad to say, that's a true testimony of alcoholism and what it does in our lives. And we think it's going to do the one thing when the truth is it brings just the opposite. Notice what Paul says, verse 18, drunkenness is dissipation. New Living Translation leads to ruin. That's what it means. It leads to ruin. If someone drinks, are they in sin? No. But they're getting close to the edge and they're putting themselves in a dangerous place. They're putting themselves in a place of temptation. And we're told to avoid those places. Instead, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit and not filled with other spirits. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to want any other spirit. You're just going to want more of God. And so he says, you want to walk wisely? 
Don't walk in partying. And then finally, to walk in wisdom, we are to walk in worshiping. Look at verse 19. He says, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the wisest thing you could ever do is live a life and walk a walk of worship to God. It's for this purpose that you've been created. And it's for this purpose that you have been saved is that God wants to make you into a worshiper of his name and of his kingdom. Kent Hughes said the goal of salvation and sanctification is God taking rebels who are an enemies of God and turning them into worshipers. And he went on to say, everyone who calls himself a Christian must understand that worship is the ultimate priority of his life. And worship isn't just singing before church. Worship is a lifestyle you live in honor and glory of God in everything that you do. As Paul the Apostle said, do everything you do all to the glory of God. And Paul tells us two ways that we can worship God in this passage. Number one is how we talk to and treat others and how we respond to God. And he says there how we treat others in verse 19, that we speak to one another in Psalms, which is basically the scripture, in hymns, which are early church hymns, we sing those today, and then in spiritual songs, which are utterances that come from a heart that is overflowing with joy to God. We just can't help ourselves. We're to speak to one another like that. In essence, we're to gather together and we're to worship God and we're to praise God together. Now, he's not saying here that, you know, we should talk to each other in singing tones. You guys all seen that movie, Les Miserables, right? That new one? Man, was that miserable. I mean, watching that whole thing. You're like, man, they just keep singing. When are they going to talk to each other? I can't stand this any longer, you know? And you're like, it's like irritating after a while. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying we sing to one another. He's saying we worship together. We join together rather than complaining and murmuring and fault finding and, and all that kind of stuff and putting each other down and tearing each other apart. We're to join together and encourage each other and lift each other up. That's what you do. That's an act of worship to God. Kent Hughes said, spirit-filled people overflow in song. During the great revivals, there was more hymns written than any other time. John MacArthur said, the spirit-filled life produces music. The spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Nothing is more indicative of a spirit-filled life than a happy heart expressing itself in song. And so we're to worship with one another. And who are we to worship? We're to worship God. Notice verse 20, he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God is something we should do when? Always. In what circumstances? All circumstances, right? Giving thanks always in all things to God the Father. That means the good and the bad. That means the difficult and the rejoicing times. We're always to give thanks always. And of course, when we give thanks to God, what does that do? It changes your attitude, right? I mean, you could be complaining and murmuring and getting mad at God and and having a miserable life, or you can turn all around and begin to worship God and thank Him. And in that thanksgiving, you're reflecting on all the wonderful things God has done, and it begins to change who you are. You see, what he's saying here is this is what it means to walk in wisdom, that you're a worshiper of God in everything you do, that you're worshiping Him. So listen, it's anticipating the next step, looking ahead. It's redeeming the time, making the most of it. It's not partying and getting filled with spirits, but being filled with the Holy Spirit, resulting in worshiping God in everything you do. And I wonder, as I look out at Reliance Church this morning, how many of you would say, well, Pastor, you're describing my life right now, bro. It's the way it is. Or would you more likely say, well, you know, there's a few things I need to work on. There's a few things that God needs to do in me. 
a few ways in which I can be more wise in the way that I live. Because listen, if you're not walking in wisdom, it's only a matter of time before it begins to crumble. You know, you can walk a certain way and live a certain way and live in rebellion against God or, or think that somehow if I have enough good to outweigh the bad I do, I can still do the bad. And you kind of live your life this way, but there's going to come someday, the Bible says that your sin will find you out and that the chickens will come home to roost. And the next thing you know, everything that you thought you lived for comes crumbling down all around you. And it's because you've chosen not to live according to wisdom, which is the fear of God, and you're not living that way. And so when all of a sudden everything does come crumbling down around you, you can realize, you know what, I haven't been walking in wisdom. And God seeks to save us from that and for us to glorify him by the way we live. And so he says here, walk in wisdom. Anticipate your next step. Redeem the time. Don't live for the next party. Be filled with the Spirit and worship God. And if you live like that, you'll be walking in wisdom. And God will use your life to glorify Him. That's what I want. I hope that you want the same thing. But maybe you'd say, well, you know what, Pastor? I mean, walking in wisdom sounds great. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Well, maybe because you need to make not the walk of wisdom, but the first step of wisdom. You see, you can't walk in wisdom until you take the first step. And that first step is none other than starting with surrendering your life to God. Because I don't care who you are, if God is not the Lord of your life, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then you'll never walk in wisdom. You may have some moments of success here and there, but you're not going to consistently be able to. Why is that? Because you're spiritually dead. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and, and sins. And apart from being in Christ, we are dead. But God offers us the opportunity to be in Christ. And remember, in the first part of Ephesians, it's all about all God's done. He's redeemed us and adopted us and saved us. He's given us all these riches and wealth in Christ, but we got to be in Christ to get them. And the way that we are in Christ is we take the one most wise step you can ever make, and that's the step of surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says we're all sinners, every single one of us have violated God's commandments, and God is a just God. And because God is just, He will send us to hell. Actually, He doesn't send us there. We send ourselves. But He obviously allows it because why? We've rejected the only means of forgiveness. Because not only is God just, He's also love. And because God is love, He sent Christ to die on the cross, to live a sinless life, but die a sinner's death. Because when Jesus died, He died for the sins of humanity. He died for your sins and my sins. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him would not perish. Whoever receives him becomes a child of God. Whoever confesses with their mouth that he is Lord and believes in their heart, God raised him from the dead, will be saved. You enter into the walk of wisdom, the life with God, by making a step of wisdom. And that step is to believe in Jesus and surrender your life to him. And your sins will be forgiven and give the hope of heaven. But the question is, have you made that first step? Because you'll never walk in wisdom without it. And you'll never go to heaven without it.